0: and encourage you to turn to Daniel 11 as we look at this tonight under the title The King of the North. When you are preparing a sermon, there are some things which may encourage you. There are some things that may discourage you. Uh, when you have a great preacher like Sinclair Ferguson saying that this is maybe the hardest chapter in the book of Daniel uh, to study, uh, that doesn't encourage you. Uh, also, I've heard... Some have said that, actually, the Daniel chapter 11 is impossible to preach with any profit to your people. I thought, well, that's really encouraging, isn't it? So, you can answer at the end of the night whether you think that is true or not. Hopefully not. It's important to remember that Daniel chapters 10 to 12 form a unity, They form one particular section at the end of this book. Chapter 10 is the behind the scenes spiritual battle. What goes on in the heavenly realms between the forces of Christ and the forces of the devil. And behind all that happens in this world, even today, with the war in Ukraine, there are these spiritual battles that go on. That's why our praying is one of the most important things we can ever do. Whether it be Ukraine, whether it be what's going on within our church or organizations, prayer is so important. Chapter 11, after chapter 10, it basically moves from the behind the scenes to look at what's going to happen in this world in church history. And Daniel is writing, it's maybe 530 BC, and he's speaking of things which are going to happen 100 years later, 200 years later, and some nearly 400 years later. And what he is sharing here has been found to come through in such amazing detail, people have doubted that indeed this was written in the time of Daniel at all, and some have said it wasn't written to 400 years later when everything had happened. But the question we have to consider is, do we believe in the God who is in charge of history or not? Do we know the God who's in control? Do we know a God? who knows exactly everything that's going to happen, and a God who can reveal that to his servants. Do we believe in a God who is real in this world or not? And for those who discount Daniel this as being a prophecy that happened before these events, in many ways they are practical atheists, people who don't believe in the existence of God in the world around them. And the encouraging thing is, as we look at the detail of this, this is an amazing God who knows everything about what's going to happen. Even he prophesies about marriages between certain kings which are going to happen in, in several centuries away. Absolutely amazing. Then chapter 12 contains the conclusion of the history. Chapter 12 will indeed share about what's going to happen at the end of time. And in many ways, all of history is building up to this great climax and conclusion, and God willing, we'll look at that next week. Now, as we look at this chapter, uh, we're going to look first of all at the historical outline here in verses 2 to 35. Uh, we're going to do a quick summary of the history of this, and then we'll look and see what lessons we particularly can learn from it. And first of all, in verse 2, we are introduced to four kings of Persia, and the fourth. It said, it shall be far richer than all of them. And then he shall become strong through his riches. He shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And this is particularly regarded as being King Xerxes, who would come to prominence, who would rule about maybe 50 years or more after Daniel made this prophecy. Uh, He led a campaign against Greece, the famous story of the 300 Spartans, who were defending Greece, that was against King Xerxes. So, this final, great, rich king of Persia who would come. And then verse 3, then a mighty king, and this is Alexander the Great, a mighty king shall arise, he shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. Alexander became king in 336 BC, so about 200 years after this prophecy. By 330 BC, so after being king for only six years, he had conquered Persia, and then he died just seven years after that, going right into India and seeking to conquer a lot of India as well. Alexander was one of the most powerful and most wonderful kings at that time, and yet he just gets a verse here. Very little is said about him at all, because God sees history different from the way the world sees it. We're going to look at a character, Antiochus, again, and he has a lot said about him because he has a lot to do with the people of God, where Alexander, in regards God's plans, important in the eyes of the world, but not particularly significant in God's plans. Alexander, his half-brother, Philip II, and his son, Alexander IV, should have succeeded him, but they were assassinated, the sign of the times. And then this moves to Alexander's divided kingdom here in verse 4. Verse 4 says that indeed, as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority of which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. So, it's saying here, it will not go to Alexander's family. So 200 years before Alexander comes on the scene, Daniel is being told that this man's family will not rule after him. It will be divided among four generals. You see a wee picture coming up there on the screen, and his four generals, Macedonia, which is the yellow in the map, would be ruled by the general Cassander. Thrace and Asia, which, basically Turkey today, would be ruled by Lysimachus. And then Syria, which is the orange part, will be ruled by Seleucus, And then the purple part, Egypt, will be ruled by Ptolemy. And particularly, look at the the orange part, ruled by Seleucus, and Egypt ruled by Ptolemy. These will be the two very important kings of the north and the south that we'll come to uh, just now. So, Alexander's great kingdom, he took over from Persia. It is divided among his four generals." Then it moves on to the next point, which is the battles of the kings of the south and the north. And so, that's the orange part uh, that you saw on the map, and the purple parts. The descendants of Seleus are called the kings of the north. Syria was north of Israel, where their headquarters was, the Seleus kingdom, Syria. The descendants of Ptolemy are called the kings of the south, Egypt. And sandwiched between this northern empire based in Syria and this southern empire based in Egypt is the little country of Israel, which just has had a small proportion of its population return. And so, there's this wee vulnerable country in between these two mighty empires, these two mighty kingdoms, and the battles between the kings of the north and the south. And if you read through those verses 5 to 20, you see that they the fight each other, the kings of the north and south. There are times where they are friends, they go into a contract through marriage, and then the marriage falls apart. The man decides to go back to his first wife, and then his wife, who's been jilted in, she decides to poison uh, some of the family members, and then they go back to conflict again. Indeed. And so, there's these ongoing battles between the kings of the north Syria and the south Egypt, and caught in the middle of it are the people of God. Very turbulent times, but what they are doing, being warned that these times are going to happen, and to understand that God is in control. And then we're introduced in verse 21 to Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes means illustrious one, and you remember how the Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, which basically means the mad one. That's the way they saw him. He came from the Seleucid Empire. That's the the northern empire there based at Syria, north of Israel. And far more time and space is given to him than Alexander. In world history, he is basically discounted, and yet he is significant here. Due to the impact, he would have on God's people. So there's the history, the four kings of Persia that would come, Xerxes being the wealthy one at the end. Then there would be Alexander the Great, this great young leader. Alexander's divided kingdom divided in four, and two of those, the king of the north, and the two in the south, a battle ongoing. And then out of the king of the north would come Antiochus fourth. So we're going to focus very much just on Antiochus fourth here. And we're looking at the attack on the Holy Covenant in verses 29 to 35. So, we're going to just focus on these short number of verses and the significance to the people of God here. And the first thing we want to see here is that in Tagus, he attacks the worship of God's people. Verse 31, "'Forces from him shall appear, and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering.'" And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And here we see that what is the great purpose, what is the great plan of the devil in all that's happening in the world in the days of Antiochus and in the world of today. The devil very simply wants to rob God of his worship. He wants to rob God of his worshipers. And so, this man Antiochus, he came into Jerusalem, he stopped the burnt offering, he offered even a pig as a sacrifice, which was an unclean animal, and he put this statue to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. He stopped the worship of the Lord and introduced this pagan in worship. And this, we need to understand, is always what the devil is about. Whether it is somewhere like North Korea in oppressing the people of God and the the church of Jesus Christ there, or whether it be in our own daily lives, trying to distract us and deflect us from taking that time to worship the Lord and His Word and prayer day by day, or to take us away from meeting with God's people. Or for us to live lives focused on, on things which are not on the Lord and to worship the things of this world rather than to worship the living God. It's all the same. He wants to rob God of his worship. He's jealous of God, he's jealous of just the awesome person God is, and he wants to come and to stop his worship. And so we need to realize this, we're in a spiritual battle. We're always in a spiritual battle for worship even as we come through these doors tonight. Just because you've entered through these doors doesn't mean that you will faithfully worship the Lord. The devil will be active. His demons will be there, trying to distract you, trying to put your focus in a wrong place, trying to give your attention and vision away from the Lord. And so we need to be prayerful. We need to be aware of that. And we need to realize that because of who God is, because what He has done, particularly in Jesus. He deserves that we would be watchful and careful and serious about giving Him the worship and the honor that He deserves. So that's the first thing with the tag is the, the attack and worship. And then secondly, we see the seduced in verse 32. It says, "'He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. And what Antiochus was able to do, it says at the start of the section about him that he came to power through flattery. He, he was, that was his great weapon. And what he did was he, he came to the, the leaders of the people of God in Jerusalem, and through his flattery, he seduced them. So, that he was able to march into Jerusalem without even a battle. It says there in the verse 30, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy, Co- the Holy Covenant. And so for those who, who waver, for those who are easily led astray, he was able to come and to use them in order to get a foothold into Jerusalem. And so they're seduced by him. They're seduced by his fine words. But once he gets a foothold in that city, then his intentions are clear as he stops the worship of the living God. And this is something we need to be aware of in our personal lives, that the devil is always seeking for a a foothold. He's always seeking to get into our lives and to cause something to take us away from the worship of the living God. It's also true within the church. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson saying from this, that this is evident from this, that the world and the influence of the world, it can only get into the church when the people of God are unfaithful. And it's through these people who were not walking closely with the Lord, who were not in their hearts really worshipers of the Lord, that the devil was able to get into this situation and to lead it astray. And we need to be aware of that, that the devil wants to seduce us. He's always wanting to lead us astray. He's always wanting to put into our lives 101 things for us to love and pursue, to spend our time to focus our minds on, minds which are to be focused on loving and adoring the living God. He wants to fill our minds with hobbies, with our work, with anything rather than Christ. We need to be aware of that. Then we see thirdly, the firm at the end of verse 32. It says that indeed, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Do you notice that? Do you notice the people that Antiochus wasn't able to suggest? What was the key thing mentioned about them? The people who know their God. The people who had a right vision of the Lord, the people who knew God and His majesty, His glory, His love, His wisdom, His greatness. And the thing that protected them was their knowledge of the living God. The word theology is sometimes a bad word for some people, and some people say, well, I just want a, a very practical uh, Christianity. I want a very practical religion. You need to understand this. The most practical thing to protect you and to keep you safe from the subtle advances from the devil is a right knowledge of God. That's a crucial thing. And that's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to study God's Word for, that it will grow more and more in our lives, this knowledge of the living God. It says there in verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand. So the wise shall be there, and they shall proclaim the truth about God, even in the face of this tyrant who's come in, this tyrant, who indeed would kill many of the people in Jerusalem, lead them astray, introduce this false worship. There were the voices that were raised. There were those who spoke the wisdom of God's Word, of God's truth, even in the middle of this. Those who were firm. And that's what we need. That's what we, we need for our young people, what we need for our children, that that wisdom, that truth of God's Word, that it gets deep within their hearts. That's what we need for our men, for our women. That's what we need for all ages, that it's God's truth that penetrates deep within because it's that alone which will protect them from being seduced by the evil one. We were looking at John 17 around Easter time at our midweeks. And there Jesus prays for his people to be protected. The disciples who he had cared for, he was now leaving them, And he asked that his holy father would protect them. How would they be protected? Protect them by your truth. It's the truth of God's Word. You see, the devil always works the same way. He always works through lies, through deceit. And it's the wisdom of God's Word which really can protect us. At the moment, our, our Bible reading, we're looking at, indeed, uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, I once started to preach through the book of Proverbs and gave up. I just couldn't do it. It was just such a, a very different book to try and work out how you preach it. But I really enjoyed doing the reading notes. I really enjoyed because just even as you have read through so many of those Proverbs, there's such amazing wisdom. I can't remember who it was. There was some great Christian leader who would read one chapter of the book of Proverbs every day of his life. Because the wisdom that is there would protect him. Wisdom about our priorities. Wisdom about our use of time. Wisdom about the company we keep. Wisdom about how we respond to people. Wisdom about every area of life. What protects us from being led astray? It's when that wisdom fills us. And you know, sometimes you're doing stories to children and young people, and uh, it's lovely to do a story they haven't heard before. Uh, the ways, you'll get the wee voice saying, I've heard this before, I've heard this before. But what we need isn't just that we they hear every story. The crucial thing is that the Word of God goes deep within our hearts and souls. That we, when the devil comes with his lies to lead us in a different direction, we instinctively know that this is wrong. Because through many years of the teaching of his word, our thinking is directed in a different way. And so, that's what we need to do. We need to have this word Fill us and deep within our hearts. So when Tagus came, he was successful against those who were easily seduced, but he couldn't take everyone. The Lord has His people. The Lord had those who remained firm, those who knew the Lord, those who knew His wisdom. And then we come to the the stumbling. Look there at the end of verse 33. We'll read all of verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they will receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Some of those who are, would stumble would be joined by those who were seduced with flattery, who would be led astray by those who, who loved the flattery. But the purpose of others who stumbled, it was so that they could be refined. They could be purified. They could be made white, and it's, the Lord is is bringing His people through those very difficult days in Jerusalem, under the terrible actions of Antiochus, to purify for Himself a special people. And sometimes we we wonder well, why is the Lord letting this happen? Why is this Lord? Lord letting this to happen to us as individuals? Why is the Lord letting things happen to us as a country or even a country like Ukraine? Why is the Lord doing that? What's the Lord's purpose? And here we see the answer in verse 35. So they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. You see, the Lord's focus, the Lord's agenda, and this will lead into what we're doing next week, is at the end game, the end times. You see, the Lord looks at where His people are now and looks to where He wants His people to be, purified and cleansed when Jesus returns. And the Lord's goal, the Lord's passion in everything is so that we will be moved from where we are now with our many sins and imperfections and lack of knowledge and truth, that we will be moved from the inadequate people we are now to being become more and more like Christ and prepared to be part of the beautiful bride at his return so we'll never make sense of this world we'll never make sense of what's happening in our lives what's happening around us if we don't understand what god's plan is god's plan is to move people from where they are to where he wants them to be when he comes again and that helps us understand in a very clear way what is our goal as a church. What are we about as a church? Our goal is to cooperate with the Lord. Our goal is to fit in with His plans. So we will be moving people from where they are, just being professors of Christ, or even if they're still in a non state, moving people where they are so they would become more and more like Jesus, maturing, developing, growing in their faith, more and more the fruit of the Spirit becoming real in their lives so they would be made ready for the coming and meeting with Jesus. Uh, this summer is going to be a, a busy time for us. We have a, uh, well, there's a church. We have a church wedding. Uh, and we have a couple of family weddings coming up this summer. And we're surrounded by a lot of times with a, when we meet with folk who are getting married, a lot of the talk and all the preparations, how's your plans and all this going, how's all, it all working out. And there's a lot of time uh, put into preparing uh, for weddings. And it's always interesting. There's, there's some uh, brides who are very laid back uh, other brides who, I can think of one bride uh, many years ago, uh, not, in, not in Brookside, you can't work it out, uh, but she had been planning her wedding since her primary school days. Uh, she just had to get the man sorted out. But she'd been planning it all on that, and then the rest are somewhere in between. But you know, we should be in that business of wedding preparation of marriage preparation. In a sense, every time we meet as a church, it is a marriage preparation class. I sit down with a a couple, I go over a number of sessions about what marriage is about, different roles in marriage, different aspects of marriage, different challenges to having that married life of, of blessing and bliss. Every meeting of the church is a marriage preparation class, preparing us for that wonderful day when down through the clouds, Jesus will come. And the question which you need to ask about yourself, the question you need to ask about the people within our church, is what sort of people do we want to be on that day? Are we just content to be what we are now? Or do we want to be as loving, as pure, as Christ-like, as sinners on earth can become by the grace and power of Christ? That's what God's agenda is moving us from where we are for that day when the bride will appear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray that it would be resting deep within our hearts. And Father, as we think of all those events which would take place in the Middle East, the kings of Persia, the kings of Greece, the king of the north, the king of the south, Antiochus, and all that was going on. Father, there was one thing behind it all, your plan, your purpose, your goal, to prepare for yourself a people who would be redeemed, refined, purified. Maybe not a very large number of people at that time but, Lord, a people that were dear and special to you. And, Father, help us to understand what your desire is for us as individuals, what your desire is for us as a church, that everything will be focused for that day, for when Jesus comes again, that we will be a bride, that we would be a people, holy and pure, a people even of splendor and glory, prepared for our beloved groom. For such grace we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.